You're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, on Twitter at Rebels Round, or through our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the podcast that covers all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and joining me tonight are Nathan. Hey, everybody. Barrent. Hey, everybody. It's Master Collect Mall from the Star Wars Action News Forums and their Holocron Enhancer, one of them at least. It's good to be back, guys. And look, Barrent has a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. Sean here. Darth Perry from the forums. Sean, thank you very much for joining us this evening. As we are apt to do sometimes with Rebels, we're going to bring in a guest host to give us a slightly different perspective. This time we had the opportunity to bring in Sean, and we're thrilled to have you here, sir. We definitely are. We definitely are. And Sean has a <laughs> long history uh, with Star Wars Action News and, and with uh, our podcasts and stuff like that. So it was my pleasure to uh, extend the invitation to you this evening, Sean. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So tonight we're going to be discussing the first regular series episode of Rebels which is Droids in Distress. And right off the bat, this one kind of surprised me because they were bringing in R2-D2 and C-3PO. Did this surprise anybody else? Having checked out the uh, visual guide, no. Although I was curious uh, when they were going to do it. The fact that it's the first regular episode, that was kind of a surprise. But the fact that they would be coming in and so would Bail Organa was something that was telegraphed quite a bit in advance. Lots of people seeing the visual guide and such and posting pictures everywhere online. I knew that they were going to bring in stuff from Star Wars mainstream, for lack of a better term. I always said that this show was going to bring in Darth Vader. It was going to bring in the Emperor. It was, it, I mean, it could bring in the droids. And maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I think we've all found out that Darth Vader is going to be coming to the show a lot sooner than we expected. But I always thought it was going to be something that was going to kind of be led up to, kind of like Darth Maul's reveal in The Clone Wars. I think jumping off with the droids in the first regular half-hour episode, I'm not sure if we needed to do this so soon. I mean, I was thrilled to see them there, but it seemed a little bit premature. Yeah, I don't know. It actually, it's it's a pretty smart move when you think about it. I mean, when you talk about Spark of Rebellion, you're introducing this whole new cast of characters within a universe with which we're all familiar and it's a tall order to do that you know to get you emotionally engaged in a whole new group of characters that you that we've never seen before so to take you from that and the show did so well the, the premiere was so highly rated you go from that to the first regular series episode and you give viewers a little bit of like and longtime fans, a little bit of an emotional touchstone by having 3PO and R2. And when you think about it, what's more Star Wars than 3PO and R2? So to have those two characters be, you know, sort of this week's guest star, let's say, right? <laughs> guest stars on what's going to be a regular series, it kind of gives fans a chance to say, okay, this is new, and a lot of these characters are new, but at least they haven't forgotten sort of like the OT characters. And for me, it put it more of an original trilogy context. So what you're saying is it gave this series a little bit more credibility. Maybe. I, mean, I don't know if credibility is the right word so much as, I mean, so much of, of the show is based on a lot of sort of the emotional Star Wars touchstones, the images that we've become familiar with before. Like you have like, you know, the roguish hero and the big alien muscle, you know, a droid with personality, you know, stormtroopers. And, you know, there a lot of the, the iconography is, you know, stuff with which we're familiar. Yeah, I, I guess you could say it's credibility. It's, it's just kind of like reminding you that, hey, this is the Star Wars universe and you're going to see. And I think it also sort of lets you know that everybody is fair game, like everybody within this time frame, you know, of the Star Wars universe could pop up in the show. I thought it was cool to see to see Bail Organa show up in the very last frames of the show, even though he looked a little odd. 
to me. Did he, did he look weird like to anybody else? I mean, maybe it's just because I'm used to seeing him depicted a certain way. You know, I, I kind of saw him a little younger. I thought he would probably look a little older. So he's either got good docs or good genes. I kind of agree with you. What was surprising to me was not the fact that C-3PO and R2 were actually introduced so early, is that they played such a big part. You know, they had so much screen time. You know, you would think that it'd be a delicate balance to go ahead and give as much screen time to the new characters as is the old characters, because we're just getting to know Kanan and Ezra, and we pretty much know who R2-D2 and C-3PO are. So it kind of, I thought they would just kind of be pop in and out here and there, but they were there the whole episode because it kind of goes into the canon thing of, you know, we know that C-3PO's mind was wiped, his memory was wiped, but we know that R2-D2's was not. So that was kind of fun for me to kind of see how they're going to play into that. Why doesn't R2 spill the beans? What does he know? And and his interaction with Chopper, because Chopper's supposed to be the, the, the main droid now in this series, and now we have the granddaddy of all the droids come in. So it, it was kind of a delicate balance. I liked it. I was more surprised at how much screen time they had than actually being introduced so early. Well, from a canon perspective, I mean, it's all, again, it's kind of all fertile ground now as far as, you know, how much does R2-D2 know? Presumably he still is carrying the knowledge from back in the prequels at this point, uh, unless there was a heretofore unmentioned memory wipe at some point. I like the fact that he is sort of the one with the secret mission. He's the one interacting in more of a, uh, a secretive way with Bail Organa by the time we get to the end of it and all. Um, what's probably most interesting interesting about them being in this when it comes to new canon versus the old Legends saga is the idea that in Legends there is supposed to be this accident in which the droids get lost because then they have to wind up with new owners in the different droids comic series by Marvel and Dark Horse and they need to then show up in the droids cartoon series with new owners to eventually find their way back to Organa. Only in this case, here we are five years before A New Hope, they're still with Organa. We have no reason to believe there's ever a point at which they're not with Organa, which is kind of a different approach uh, than Legends took. But to kind of get a, like a quick buckshot approach here to some of the stuff that you guys brought up, the scene with Vader that's being discussed here on the 26th of this month of October, ABC is going to re-air Spark of Rebellion in prime time. And when they do, that's when we're going to get this added Vader scene, apparently interacting with the Inquisitor or somehow tying into the Inquisitor, which should be uh, interesting. I think the strength of the premiere of Spark of Rebellion in a lot of ways was the fact that it is a whole new cast of characters, as Sean mentioned. Not that it was necessarily difficult for people to connect to because it had all these, these new characters, since they fit so many of the archetypes we would expect. I would argue that it was easier to get into the show because those characters were new and exciting and interesting as opposed to it being like the Clone Wars where we're sitting back saying, yeah, we know him, yeah, we know him, yeah, we know her, how is this different? Wow, look at that chin, look at that beard trying to sort of measure out the interpretations in animated form of characters we already knew. Whereas in that case, it was pretty much all new characters that were being thrust at us. When it comes to C-3PO and R2-D2 being in it, the two, well, them and Bale, being the two major and one side character here that in a sense are our touchstones, I'd say in a lot of ways, it wasn't used well. It reminds me of, you know, uh, we're going to launch a new Stargate series, so this series has to start with a guest star from the previous television series in it to make it feel like it's all connected. But in a lot of ways, it really felt, uh, to make a Star Wars comparison here, it felt like the novel Death Troopers, where they threw Han and Chewie into it just to say, hey, look, it's Star Wars, guys! But you were like, oh, whatever, because there was never any real peril for the characters, and they feel like they were kind of shoehorned in. With the exception of laying the groundwork for a tie between Bale and this group of rebels, that's what I'm hoping, is that they were there, yeah, they were shoehorned in, but it was all to create that connection to Bale, so Bale can play a bigger role tying into this group of rebels as the seasons progress. But just from the standpoint of them in the episode really kind of felt out of place to me. How did the droids end up in the service of the Empire in the first place? That that was kind of lost on me. Did, 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 I, did I miss something? I don't think they ever stated how they got into that service, and maybe that'll come out in some other media, but it was never explicitly explained. I mean, I, I'll say I like the episode, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. But they, they lay out the fact that this is a secret mission, essentially, and that 
these two droids are out there on a mission from Bale to make sure that those disruptors don't fall into Imperial hands. So he in some way made sure they were ingratiated into the Empire or, or integrated into the Empire somehow so they could wind up on this particular mission and thereby try to stop that shipment. That The mission that, that uh, R2-D2 was talking about was essentially the same thing that our heroes eventually wind up wanting to do, get the disruptors out of Imperial hands. So it's just it's just like seeding a secret agent into a situation, only in this case they're droids. Okay, well, I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, so let's take a look at this episode from the beginning. The episode opens up with... The ghost on the run from some TIE fighters in a Star Destroyer. And I have to say, I'm wondering if every Rebels episode is going to open with a Star Destroyer scene. <laughs> I mean, just like the movies. Yeah. But I, I just, I found myself going, wow, that's that's kind of cool. But it is, a every, every original trilogy movie starts with a Star Destroyer scene. So maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I picked up on that. And I'm just curious to see where they go. And if the third one starts with a Star Destroyer scene, I'm going to laugh. This was the beginning of season one officially. So that may, it may just be a season thing what i would want to see is if they're going to alternate it like they do with the films right if it's an even number it's a star destroyer coming from behind or some kind of ship coming from behind but if it's an odd number it's fair game to come down to it facing forward to come down from above the way the films did now people who didn't think of that are going to have to go check the film and say holy crap <laughs> the inclusion of the Star Destroyer flyover is already getting old. <laughs> we're we're only two episodes in, so or or one episode or one and one movie in. It just feels like okay, you've got you know, Star Destroyer flyover, check. Tie fighters, check. It's sort of you know okay, you know like don't don't go to the well like like too many times on, on a lot of the a lot of the classic you know iconography here because that's right. Am I wrong? Am I, am I the only one who feels that way? I I don't feel that way. I like it. In fact, I hope that they start every episode, not with so much a Star Destroyer or a TIE Fighter flyover, but with the Empire. You know, start with the Empire. Start with the people that who are in power. You know, maybe on the deck of a Star Destroyer or what have you. So I hope they continue that trend because then you start feeling not only the original trilogy feel, but you start feeling that the Empire is actually in power. One of the things that you mentioned, Jonathan, is we start off with the ghost. They really fleshed out the ghost in this episode. You know, in the first movie, we kind of seen the cockpit and kind of seen where the, you know, they shoot the lasers at the enemies. But here we got to see some different compartments. We got to see where the different characters are traveling, you know, in the ghost. And I, I like, kind of liked how they fleshed the ghost out a little bit here. Barrett, that's something I picked up on, too. The ghost is starting to become, in a lot of ways, almost another character i'm getting that sense i mean you're, you're starting to see how different compartments work and the the different levels you know the millennium falcon was always i always kind of took it as like one level one floor but the ghost i mean you got to take ladders up and down there's sort of that mid-level between the cargo bay and the cockpit where you can access the front turret i'm finding it very interesting the the layout of this ship as always being a vehicle ship guy i kind of am looking forward to, to exploring this more which one I would say that I think the introduction, I think it was more meant to evoke the Empire Strikes Back and the retreat of the Falcon from the Star Destroyer more so than just saying, hey, let's throw a Star Destroyer here, because it really evoked Empire Strikes Back that first few seconds. The group is able to escape, and we come to realize that they are kind of in a bad shape, in a bad way. They, they need money, they need food, and apparently, according to Sabine, they need more explosives. So I think maybe our discussion last time was right. She is... Maybe a little pyro, as Baron put it. And they are forced to consider taking a job from Visago, the Deveronian we met in Spark of Rebellion, to steal some arms, steal some munitions. And Zeb makes the comment, so we're arms dealers again, meaning that this group possibly has done that before. And these are little things that I, I enjoy. And it's something that I think this episode really has going for it is they seem to be referencing these other things going on, especially, you know, Zeb's backstory, where they're not they're giving you a little bit of information, but they're not hitting you over the head with it. But it's whetting my appetite to learn more about these characters. How did you guys feel? Well, the one thing that Star Wars fans love more than anything, besides toys, <laughs> is is minutia. I mean, and you know, I'm sure Nathan knows what I'm talking about. You know, with you know wanting to buy the source books and wanting to know everything we possibly can about uh, about different characters, especially new characters. And what was great 
about that and to your point what, what was great about this episode is they throw out little bits like that where you start to get to know the characters a little better and i love that we finally well finally it's the only it's only the second episode but you know we finally get to see a little more character development with zeb finding out that many of his people were wiped out with these weapons of destruction that basically like separate the atoms in, in an organic being. So I enjoyed that a lot. It, it actually gave it some depth, to at least a bit of character development that I felt was really missing from Spark of Rebellion, even though we're supposed to care about this new cast of characters. And, and when I watched Spark of Rebellion, I didn't, I came away from it going, okay, but why do I care about these characters? I, I didn't. But now like we get a little more depth and we get a little more background on, you know, on, on at least one of these characters and we see like what their motivation is and more importantly that they that they don't always win and at the same time i think they kind of took a couple steps backwards when it came to kanan you know at the end of spark of rebellion he is the jedi takes out his lightsaber and he lets the world know or the empire know that there's still a jedi around but yet when we have this first fight with the stormtroopers he's still using his blaster and i kept thinking when is he going to pull out his lightsaber i mean they know there's a jedi out there they know what he looks like and he kind of stepped backward a little bit so i don't know if that had anything to do with the droids being in there or they wanted this to be a zeb character focused episode as like ezra was in the spark of rebellion but i kind of think they took a couple steps back with kanan here i think you probably argue that that was a matter of within the storytelling framework that they've given us here uh, between this and a new dawn that it's just not something that he is particularly comfortable doing anymore or unless he's become really comfortable with it in the last six years since a new dawn took place um he really hadn't used it all that much uh, since Order 66. So there's the risk of exposure, the risk of drawing more attention to themselves like he already did the one time. So he's someone who tends to rely more on the blaster. From a film standpoint, or a filmmaking series making standpoint, it'd be nice if the lightsaber would come out when it mattered. When it would come out when it's something where it actually makes a big difference. Like the Phantom, you don't want the Phantom to just be popping out all the time. If you're going to introduce it and they're going to be some kind of big reveal to it, then fine, make it a big reveal. But do it in a way that's actually serving the story where it feels like there's some some buildup to it overall. I think they use, they use the time frame here, though, pretty well. Not only does it let us know that they're desperate. You've got Zeb. We learn a little bit, even before we know anything about his people, that this character that for the most part was the big stereotype walking around in the last episode. Here's a guy who doesn't want to be just arms dealers or arms redistributors, as Kanan puts it. But I think one of the more important elements of the passage of time here isn't just how desperate they are, it's the fact that Kanan hasn't been teaching Ezra. That you get this big gap, apparently, in time, it seems, between Spark of Rebellion and Droids in Distress, and he's to the point of griping about the fact that he's not getting the training, and a part of the character arc of this episode has to be kicking Kanan's butt into gear to get the training going. Um, the time jump here, it'd be interesting to know how many weeks, days, months, or whatever it is we're supposed to assume has transpired here, because... They tend to jump, make that time jump and actually use it in this case instead of it being arbitrary. It's very much like um, the time jump that of much longer time in the Clone Wars where they use it to sort of redefine the situation and then get going from there. Now, I'm going to say that there may not be a time jump because if we know anything about the Star Wars universe is that adolescents are whiny. <laughs> Ezra just could have been whining for the sake of whining, because he is worth still wearing the same clothes. But neither here nor there. And he's apparently the only member, I, I didn't notice this until this episode, but he's apparently the only member of the crew who doesn't use lipstick or something, because he's the only character on the crew, aside from Chopper, who doesn't have defined lips. Have you notice that? It's kind of weird. You know, back to what you said, Nathan, about Kanan's almost reluctance to begin Ezra's training. I found myself wondering if that was not because he is still having a very difficult time accepting or re-accepting his role as a Jedi, whatever that means to him. As we discussed last time, as was stated in A New Dawn, Kanan has, in a lot of ways, or had, in a lot of ways, turned his back on his Jedi heritage and only recently has reaccepted it. And I'm wondering if the idea of passing on the teachings is part of that. And for what it's worth, folks, uh, the story of what happened to Kanan to make him that reluctant between Order 66 and A New Dawn apparently is going to be the subject of an upcoming Marvel Comics series we learned from New York Comic Con. You know, Jonathan, to your point, I don't know if Kanan was completely trained 
You know, he may not know what he's doing when it comes to training a Padawan. Nathan mentioned him mentioned last episode that Kanan was a Padawan himself when Order 66 went down. So his training was incomplete. So he may not know what he's doing all the time when it comes to Jedi training. And maybe that's what's blocking him. That's kind of how I took it, which makes it strange that he would ask Ezra to join him and learn the ways of the Force if he's not completely trained himself. I think you bring up an excellent point there, Baron. I, he, he probably hasn't or doesn't know the appropriate way to train an apprentice, considering he hasn't. It's, it's almost like the blind leading the blind a little ways. And again, we are jumping all over this episode, but there's a point later where Ezra does call on the Force. And I found myself wondering, even though he uses the Force to save Zeb, it's a very raw, very almost aggressive way of using the Force. And I'm wondering, how open to the dark side, given when Ezra is starting his training, his previous experiences, will he be? And how will Kanan deal with that? I want to know how much he knows in advance as well. Because the argument used to always be made, well, if you're using the Force and you're not trained, you're more susceptible to the dark side. And we saw him in this episode doing those crazy jumps using the Force. And that would certainly try to lend some credence to how he was able, you know, and he got a wow, if I remember right, to make the jump with a crate in his hands onto the ghost when escaping uh, Lothal, or Lothal, however they're saying it this week, back in Spark of Rebellion. So he's he's got some kind of instinctive use of it here, but he seems shocked when he does the Force push later. One wonders if there's some measure of control that he already has, but it's always been just a tool to him. And now that he's actually using it for a purpose, that we'll start to see the question of tipping light side or dark side or whether that'll even really be dealt with too much since it seems as though the Jedi training doesn't appear to be a major component of the series just yet, that it seems like it'd be more in small doses, which makes sense. Not only that, but this is the second time that they've shown Ezra, quote unquote, more powerful than Kanan. In Spark of Rebellion, he's the one who senses Kanan before Kanan senses he him, which you would think that Kanan's been a Jedi. He would be able to use those Jedi powers and be able to sense someone before that. And when you mentioned that he uses that force push to save Zeb, Kanan's on the ground next to him, and he kind of looks up surprised, like he didn't realize that he could do that. So how powerful is Ezra in the Force? But I think this all answers the question. The fact that he is so reluctant to actually train Ezra after making the offer at the end of Spark Rebellion finally clears it up. That's right. The reason he went back to Ezra's place at the end of Spark Rebellion, it wasn't to offer to train. He just wanted his freaking lightsaber back. <laughs> so back to the episode, the crew travels back to Lothal and goes to the spaceport to pick up a transport to the, I'm assuming it's a joining world of Garel to interdict a arm shipment that's being done between an Aqualish and an, in, what is she, an Imperial representative? She is, in one form or another, she works for the Empire and is a graduate of the Imperial Academy. That's about all we've uh, we've known. She's part of the Imperial government of Lothal. We learned that from the Holonet stuff that they've got online, but that's about all we know. Her name, by the way, is Maketh Tua, T-U-A, and the Aqualish with her, uh, who apparently can't work without a translator here, is Amda Wabo. I do like the fact that Sabine is fluent in a lot of languages. She seems to be the one who can understand not only Chopper, but she can understand Wabo. And and the Wookiees last episode, right? Right. That's one thing. The fact that everybody can understand Chopper. I always thought in the original trilogy, it was a big thing that almost nobody could understand R2. That they always needed C-3PO to figure out what the hell R2 was saying. But now everybody speaks binary. Anybody else? Chopper, Chopper telegraphs his moods and everything even more than R2-D2 does. And I'm pretty sure that Chopper starts every sentence with, hey, screw you, but... Yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I'm with you, Jonathan. I, I don't really, I don't get that either. Like, how does everybody suddenly understand, like, what, you know, what an astromech is saying? I just, I don't get that at all. While they're on the ship and everybody kind of enters in separately to sort of set the stage, we're introduced to, or not introduced, we see that there is the pilot droid from Star Tours. And this being a Disney show, I, it was inevitable that they were going to make some Star Tours references, wasn't it? But on the plus side, Barrent, they already have that toy. And it was yes, Rex. And it was actually Rex. It was RX-24. It is Rex, according to the episode guide on StarWars.com and all, I believe. Uh, and 
Not only is it Rex, the shuttle is designed around the Star Tours ones, and they got Paul Rubens back to do the voice of Rex for this. It's They really went all out for such a small character in a quick little scene. Wait a minute, that was Paul Rubens? Yes. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, I didn't yeah. sound like him. I, I was just finding myself thinking, wow, damn, that, that would have been great if they had gotten Paul Rubens, but okay, it was him. Yeah, no, they did. Bizarro, but yes, they did. I thought that sort of nod to Star Tours w- was interesting. I just, it's kind of funny that of all the EU that they are going to sort of reaccept into this new canon that they had to choose Star Tours. Yeah, I mean, Star Tours is, you know, part of the Disneyfied canon, if you will. So it's, it's, if it, it's kind of when you think about it, if anything was going to be saved, you know, from, from the existing uh, EU, uh, that would be among one of the things that would, uh, that they would keep. It has been announced that Disney is going to quote unquote expand their footprint of Star Wars in their parks. So, you know, Disney are brilliant people. And it makes sense that they would go ahead and uh, feature something that might be willing to sell in their parks in the future. But speaking of the carryover, I guess, to correct an error that I didn't even think about uh, looking into from the first episode, I made the comment about Zeb being an all-new fertile ground species. Jared Rasher, I believe it was, one of our listeners, I think it was Jared, called me on and said, uh, nah, not entirely. It turns out Lasan, the Lasat, the creatures based on the concept art of Chewbacca, actually did appear in the Legends continuity. Uh, not much. A Tatooine manhunt from the old RPG and so forth, and a couple of other side articles and things like that. But that species even is a name at least being carried over with the look rather than just carrying over the look from the uh, Macquarie concept art. Seeing as how this is going to be an episode that features so much of that Lasat background mattering. Back to the trip between Lothal and Garel, we get Chopper and Ezra kind of getting into it. And I, I was laughing out loud when Chopper was just taunting and poking and electrocuting Ezra. I, I don't know why, but I found that I found that very amusing. Maybe because I kind of wanted to do that to Ezra. What about you guys? <laughs> Come on, leave Aladdin alone. No, I, I agree. I, I, that that was I found that pretty funny too. The crew is able to remove C three PO and R two D two from being able to interact between the minister and Mister Wabo, thereby allowing Sabine to step in as the translator, getting information. And knowing where this weapons cache is being stored. Did anybody else catch the uh, the the Macquarie three PO that was that was yes. in the back of them? Yes, that, that was cool. I, I enjoyed that. And I, I gotta admit, I'm liking all these little details that they're throwing. It's almost like bones they're throwing to the fan because I was at a get together this weekend, and some friends of my wife who have children who are real Star Wars fans for their age, but I mean they're only I think they're like maybe six or seven. And he came up to me and goes, have you seen this new show? And I mean, he really loves it, which is thrilling to me because I love when the younger generations are into Star Wars. But these are details that are just going to kind of blow by them. But it really shows that the, the creators of this show are are giving us, the fans, the hardcore fans, at least a nod in in the creation of these episodes. I like that that the, the Macquarie references that you see in this whole series are so overt and not and just just part of the landscape like they just went full you know they went full tilt on saying you know what this show is going to have a very macquarie-esque look to it all and not shoehorned in but it, it was a lot more subtle in uh, in clone wars but sometimes when when it did pop up it was it seemed a little more obvious and sometimes a little out of place. Whereas here, it's like every every scene has another Macquarieism to it. I mean, the, the shape of uh, Maketua's hat. Did it bug anybody else that Maketua's hat and and like in her head and her whole her whole character design was almost identical to the woman who we see in the first seconds of, of Spark of Rebellion, right, where the Imperial officers are bothering that Gotal who's selling the fruit, selling the yogurts. They pan to and the the one bullying um, Imperial officer says, you know, who's going to stop us? You and they and they go to they show like a woman and a Rodian like next to her, and it's like the same exact. It's almost like they copied like the same exact woman and like repurposed her like for for this it makes sense that if that's the standard issue uniform 
for a woman, an imperial officer, that they would be wearing that hat. They are reusing character models. We saw this early on in Clone Wars, and it wasn't the only case of this. Another passenger in that shuttle was the same sort of prototype Han that we saw in Tarkin Tech. Yeah, call it the Onderon effect, given how we saw that so egregiously used back in the Onderon arc back in uh, Season 5 of, of Clone Wars and all. From a reference standpoint, though, yeah, the, the Macquarie references here are usually fairly tasteful. But I would agree with Jonathan, a lot of this stuff is going to zip by the younger viewers, but for those who've really been Star Wars fans for a long time, it's cool to see them. Although, I wonder how much of that is meant to be nods for us as a longtime fans, and how much is just the fact that Filoni himself is a hardcore Star Wars fan, and he likes to seed these little things into it, and now he doesn't have Lucas looking over his shoulder as he's doing these things. About the Macquarie, it doesn't seem forced. It just seems that this is the way it is in this time period of the Star Wars universe. And which makes sense because every so often the character will change, most notably the stormtroopers or the clone troopers. You know, we go from one to another. So it makes sense that in this period of time, things are going to look familiar, but look a little different. And I like the way that it isn't shoehorned in, that it is more natural. And I, I'm chomping at the bit every time that there is a reference to Macquarie because he should get his due. He should get his due. No, I agree. It's part of the landscape, and I find it very welcome. It makes sense, as Baron said, because this is the transition between you know what we knew before, what we're going to know, and it it feels it feels appropriate. I mean, even Visago's droids are all the original IG eighty eight designs. Yeah. Which is which was really cool. Every time you see them pop up, you're like, oh wow, that's and you get to see the move. You get to see a character design like that actually like you know they're like moving the crates. After they land, as they're disembarking, Sabine lets Ezra know that it's Bay 7 instead of Bay 17. And Ezra goes off to sneak into the bay and then open the door for the rest of the crew. Nathan, you made a point last time about not knowing where Ezra hid the holocron when he was in Imperial hands. It jumped out at me and I thought of you immediately. When Sabine is leaving the shuttle, she suddenly has her helmet. Where did that come from? She didn't have it when she entered the ship, and she didn't have it when she walked out of the door. It just suddenly appeared. Did anybody else catch that, or am I just being way too nitpicky? I didn't catch that either. Did you guys? Maybe there's like a preloading of luggage into your overhead rack or something? Okay, I'm being too nitpicky. Thanks for clarifying. No problems. No, 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 but you're right. Yeah, no, you're right, though. That that's I, I didn't think of that <laughs> before you said it. I, I guess maybe the Mandalorian helmets fit just fine in the overhead. They fold down. Yes. And apparently Mandalorian armor isn't as recognizable now as it otherwise would have been, because it seemed a little odd that Tua was willing to accept her. Like, oh, you're at the Academy, blah, 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 when she's flat out <laughs> wearing this tie-dye-looking Mandalorian armor. But it's a nitpick to it all. The fact that she knows the languages presumably makes it more believable that she could possibly be an Academy student. Just... It's another one of those odd things when you've got these characters who, as we saw with the Clone Wars, uh, with the exception of only a few episodes in the early seasons, it's probably going to take us a couple of seasons before these characters have any clothes that look different, because that's just what the character models are. Add to the fact that apparently her disguise personality is the ward of a Lasat, which we already know that Tua knows is a near-extinct species and a species that was essentially almost wiped out by the Empire. That didn't ring any bells. Ezra kind of goes building hopping and was he using the force there i know we said earlier that that we thought he was using the force i just thought maybe he was a really good jumper that was a little odd to see him sort of almost dodging traffic to get to that other building it was kind of cool but i think it could have happened without him jumping across buildings he could have just run across roofs or even just used the duck system did he need to jump across the buildings like that one of the things about aladdin i mean ezra is that uh he he seems to use the force intuitively to me it was it seemed like he was definitely using the force to jump from building to building because normal human beings wouldn't be able to do that. And he just uses the force without thinking about it. And he's always been able to do things like that. This is one of those cases where he's able to do things physically that he might not even think about that. Like, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. It's, it's just what I do. Have we seen that before? I mean, I know that in episode one, Anakin was able to pilot a pod racer as a human because of his force abilities. But we never saw that in Luke. I mean, Luke was supposed to be the all-powerful A New Hope. 
And he didn't know anything about the Force until Obi-Wan came along. And presumably, Obi-Wan and him were kind of friends on Tatooine. They knew each other. And Ezra is using the Force a lot for someone who is not formally trained. You know, I don't think we know what Luke was doing on Tatooine before A New Hope begins. Not anymore. <laughs> but Luke is supposed to be like a, you know, this incredible hotshot pilot that you have to assume that that's partly due to his, you know, natural force ability. You know, that he's well, able to have incredibly quick reflexes and see things before they happen. That and being able to shoot a, a womp rat killing innocent animals. But th- this is the first time where we're actually seeing someone who's not formally trained in the force being able to use it instinctively, overtly, using force powers that Anakin and Obi-Wan had trouble using, you know, a force push or something like that. Jumping, you know, like Obi-Wan Kenobi in, in episode one, using that, you know, you, you presumably you'd have to be trained to do something spectacular like that when it's coming very natural to Ezra. You can also make it the argument that it could be from his upbringing as well. The fact that he doesn't have parents around and he is sort of living on the street. He's had to make do with what his features are. And in that case, force use and, and the instinctive use of it is a feature. And he probably at least some of those things like uh, being able to sense danger, perhaps spider sense style. He's sort of honed because here's a guy who's had to be on his own for so long. Whereas Luke always had his aunt and uncle. He was kind of coddled when he's in the T-16 zipping around, you know, bullseye womp rats and such. Maybe that's what makes him such a great pilot because that's when the instincts come into play, when he actually has to dip into those resources rather than it being Oh, look, it's my life on a moisture farm. I really don't think I'm going to need the force all that much when I'm doing this. We'll just have to see. I mean, we don't know much about Ezra's background, and hopefully more will be revealed as the series progresses. Perhaps once he meets his little buddy so he can have someone of his age to speak with, the the cadet that he's going to meet eventually. Spoiler alert. In the current trailer they just released for the show, they show the character and talk about wanting to know about his little friend. So not a spoiler anymore. And another spoiler alert. They just released a still of the young Jedi from the Clone Wars. It's an official image that they're around and all of them have survived. I'm talking about Gunji and Biff and the rest of them are going to be in Rebels. So that's pretty exciting. So they get into Base 7. They discover that the weapons are disruptors. And Zeb has a very intense reaction to these. You know, we're starting to learn a little bit more about Zeb. And you get the idea that there is more to it. And as the episode unfolds, we find out that the history of his species and these particular disruptors... I I just, I really liked how it was handled. It was done in a way where, you know, my kids could get it, but it wasn't so kiddified that I couldn't enjoy it myself. What what did you guys think about this? Yeah, I agree. I I loved how suddenly you've got, you know, like we said before, about you're getting some depth to one of the characters. And it was a very adult theme. Like genocide is like a, is an incredibly adult theme. You know, I I was watching it with my, my boy who's four. And it was obvious that he was like recoiling from something horrible, and, you know. And, and my son's reaction was like, "Like what? When? What? You know? What is it?" And I'm like, "Well, they, you know." And like they they explain what happened, and and we talked about it later. And that time I said, "Yeah, they they used those those guns on on his people, and and his people died, you know." And you know, and he just he, he just but he got it. He understood it. You know, I I loved you know the character development there. But yeah, I mean, that that's really like, you know, bringing in genocide of, of a species is really like, that's, that's going for the jugular that early that that's like, that's saying, you know, the empire is some, you know, for all their cool looking tech and great looking weapons and ships and everything like these are some really terrible people. That's classic Star Wars. They blew up a whole planet in the first film. So genocide is part of their M.O. The way it was used here was so organically done. It was nicely done. It wasn't in your face initially. They finally gave us the characterization of Zeb that broke him away from the stereotype that we got back in Spark of Rebellion in a lot of ways. It was not something where it was just, here, we're going to smack you in the face. Disruptors, that's how they killed my people. The Empire must pay. Instead, you get when he's beating up the stormtroopers when they're trying to steal them. One of the things he says, aside from, you know, what, what amounts to sort of the, the alien version of come get some, he says never again, which, of course, we associate not just with the concept of, you know, something horrible, but in real world culture, we, we associate the never again phrase with the Holocaust. 
which is another instance of genocide marking the parallel there. And then when he gets back aboard the ship, even in that case, it's not a question of, well, he's sitting around griping about it, grousing about it, and beating stuff up. He just is grumbly with Ezra in a way that causes Ezra to have to kind of sulk off. But it's not, you don't know what they did to my people, get out. He's using that frustration in a very human sort of way, lashing out without actually saying what it is that's bothering him so much, and it's up to Hera to step in uh, and play sort of the, the mother figure, the mother figure or the older sister type figure on the ship here, tapping, I guess, into her uncle Cham Sindula's roots of being able to bring together people into sort of an organized family without being a family and all. But much more organically done in this case than we would have necessarily expected this type of story to be told to us just a few years ago in the Clone Wars. There, we would have been slapped in the face repeatedly with it initially. Here, it feels organic, so that the first part of the episode almost feels like it's the mystery of what's the importance of these weapons and re the slow revelation of what's going on with Zeb, so that the last half of the episode can be the payoff of him confronting one of the architects of it without realizing he'd already confronted that architect before. Far more organic and better paced than what we would have seen with Clone Wars. I couldn't agree more. The thing that struck me, and then we'll move on, is it wasn't just anger that we saw from Zeb. I actually believed he was afraid when he saw this. Did you guys pick up on that too? Yeah, I mean, there was palpable like fear and revulsion on his face when he's like recoiling from the, you know, from the crate. As Nathan said, they steal the disruptors and they make their way back to Lothal. You know, Nathan, when you said Hera was kind of taking the mom role, that's how it's, it seemed to me because when Zeb and Ezra are kind of fighting and Zeb kicks him out of the cabin and Hera's like, Ezra, could you come in here? I mean, that was such a mother thing to say. I thought it was hilarious. But she then explains some more of Zeb's backstory. One thing that we didn't mention is when our crew escapes with the disruptors, they have two more passengers or Chopper's new friends, as Sabine puts it, R2-D2 and C-3PO, who stowed away. Again, they're being used to kind of move this story along. We haven't talked about them as much lately, but these two are really kind of the catalyst for this whole episode. Because as they move on, we discover that R2-D2 is listening in on conversations, and eventually we discover it's because he's recording all of this for Bale, possibly so that Bale can have more information about other rebel resistance cells that he can bring together possibly in a unified fashion a little bit closer to the classic trilogy but r2 and 3po when they get to lethal it's 3po who calls in the empire on them and 3po just causes all sorts of trouble Always has, always will. That's the only point where I would agree with you that that they are a catalyst for anything within this. Yes, they're the ones that, that inadvertently bring down Callus and his walkers on them and everything. But them being part of the shuttle trip, really not necessary. They could very easily have done some other way to ingratiate themselves with the woman. Or, hey, gotten another droid out of the way or some other kind of translation thing out of the way to use that to ingratiate themselves and find out where the weapons are. Uh, while they're aboard the ship, they're kind of a non-issue. Oh, look, he's made a friend. Ah, well, we'll just sell them. Aside from needing them to be there in order to make that connection to Bail later, which is sort of, it seems, hopefully as a catalyst for things later, it seems like the only thing they were needed in this episode for story-wise, in terms of the main plot, is quite simply to have some reason for Callus to wind up showing up. And that could have been easily because somebody tagged the ship or something or had a tracer inside one of the crates when they left the spaceport back on Garel. It really seemed like R2 and 3PO had very little role to play in here that was really necessary, except to be there to connect to Bale. Even through our conversation, what I'm thinking might be happening here is laying groundwork for something that we're going to see in the future. It's not something I would have given maybe the Clone Wars credit for doing, but I think think that it's very possible that they are planting seeds for something bigger that we're going to see in the future. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. But for this episode as a self-contained episode, they really weren't much of an issue in the episode. They were just kind of there, in the way a lot of times. They bring the weapons to Visago, and they are attacked by the Empire after... 3PO lets them know where they are. One thing that really worked for me was when 3PO makes the call, basically, to the Empire, and, and they show up, and there's that moment where you get the dropship comes in with those two walkers. That was a great moment. 
I thought that for me was like one of the prime moments like in this episode where where you you felt a sense of of impending doom and right, it was, right. And, it, and it was cool to watch like all of a sudden it's like here it comes uh, you, got, you got that here it comes moment which to me is very very star wars and i did that work as much for you guys I mean, what did you think no no i think you're right it was very star wars it was very reminiscent of luke going against the adat in empire strikes back in the hoth battle basically when you have a story of a hero the villain must be more powerful than the hero if the hero is going to have any credibility and when you have these walkers being dropped down from a drop ship going against basically you could say unarmed heroes i mean what could they do that whole battle scene was great and how they're able to fight off those walkers i mean hera they're shooting at hera and she's basically able to hide behind some of those I guess you would call them pillars because of the the smoke and all the debris that's being shot up. So now that was a great scene. I mean, absolutely. You got impending doom because for all we know, any one of these characters can get the chop. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but it could happen. And the walkers themselves are another Macquarieism. They're all, or well, concept art is not Macquarie in this case. Joe Johnston back in 79 did basically a concept art that became these ATDPs, the all-terrain defense pods. To me, as someone who's collecting Holy Grail for years, was that signed limited edition newspaper strips collection from a very or Goodwin and Williamson. It's very cool to see it because that same concept art had become another type of walker, the advanced raider, back in the newspaper strips way early on in Star Wars' run. And the fact that we now see that this ship can drop not just TIE fighters, but also the ATDPs and such, to me it gives a little more credence to that design, because it seemed a little weird you'd have an Imperial craft with a bunch of TIE fighters just kind of connected underneath it back in Spark of Rebellion, but to see it here where it's basically, you know, a multi-purpose vehicle that can drop whatever is needed for the mission, I thought that makes that whole concept make a little bit more sense for the viewer. Oh, I agree. I think the technology that they're using for the Empire is just very, it's very cool, it's very functional, very visually appealing. It works. It really works. Also at this time, Agent Callus confronts them, or specifically confronts Zeb, with a bow staff and reveals the fact to him that he was one of the architects of Zeb's species' annihilation. I thought this was a tremendous, tremendously powerful moment, as well as just the battle between the two of them. Now, I did find it interesting that Callus was as proficient with the bow staff as Zeb would be, given that Zeb was obviously one of the honor guard that was spoken about. Again, giving more hints to his backstory that are, were the only people privileged to use that type of weapon. Yeah, I mean, that really, really worked for me. And the whole confrontation between Callus and Zeb and the fact that I loved and was surprised by the fact that Zeb doesn't win in that confrontation that, that Zeb ends up getting his tail kicked because he fights angry. I might be reading too much into this here, but like one of the takeaways from that, like what did we learn today? <laughs> you know, seeing, you know, themes of, of that, that whole confrontation is, you know, don't fight angry because he's fighting too emotionally and completely irrationally. And, and callous just takes him down just so surgically in a fight where Zeb is clearly like the more fierce opponent and larger opponent. But Callus just dissects him by fighting cold. It, 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 you know, it's funny. It, it reminded me of something that uh, Sergeant Vow says in the Republic Commando books, where he, I think, I think Nathan, help me here. I think, I think it's from Triple Zero, where Vow says um, talks about Cal Scarada, and he says, he says, you know, Scarada, you know, I fight cold. You know, Scarada fights hot. It's his weakness. I, I know I'm probably the only one who <laughs> thought of that <laughs> while watching that scene, but that was a callback for me, and and it was, it, I thought it was great that zeb lost and has to like you know and but like lives to fight another day and and, and that it's not that they're not always gonna gonna win it's not gonna be like in clone wars where 90 percent of the time you know grievous loses that that just got to be a parody after a while well i think it all goes back to what baron said last episode the empire at this time is a credible threat they're dangerous. They're deadly. Even though the stormtroopers aren't terribly accurate, you still get the sense 
that they could easily win. Yeah, I mean, Callus is incredibly capable. He's a really bad dude. I mean, <laughs> he's really he's a he's a force to be reckoned with on the Imperial side, and that's that's and I and I think that's great. You know, it gives them it gives them real villains. It gives them real foils. You know, you don't just have these like paper thin villains anymore for you know for our heroes to to go up against. And and great great villains, you know, make for a great story. I mean, you know, Batman's been doing that for seventy five years. It's funny is it's one of those things where I think there's some misconception among fandom when they were first revealing Rebels, and the idea was, oh, there's the Inquisitor, he's awesome, he's gonna be the big bad guy, and then you get Callus. And the thought for a lot of people seemed to be that Callus was like this second tier villain. He wasn't gonna be this big threat. That he would sort of be the Grievous. When the Inquisitor was essentially be Asajj Ventress or, or even a Dooku, someone who is much more of a threat than Grievous tended to be. In this case, with Callus being sort of second fiddle, he is going to be the one who keeps getting his butt kicked. You know, judge me by my facial hair, do you? Kind of thing, where he just, he looked a little odd. He was going to be the one constantly taking his lumps. And instead here, we're given him as a credible threat, which is not something I think a lot of fans expected with Callus going into this. Maybe after Spark of Rebellion, but certainly not just from, you know, the few things that we saw. Him. Oh, he's the guy who says, you know, focus fire on, on the Jedi. Oh, he's got a break in the middle of his sentence. Yeah, he's he's not going to be a credible threat. He's he's the timid one, and he certainly is anything but. Uh, I was shocked to find, probably because I didn't read enough of the visual guide, I would bet, that he was one of the architects behind what happened on Lasan. The fact that the Empire did it, yes. Something to drive Zeb in that sense, yeah, that made perfect sense in the episode. That was kind of expected as soon as he started talking about the Disruptors, which, by the way, from the Legends continuity is also something that was because of what it did to, to organic bodies, something that was outlawed, which is kind of cool to see that carry over. I'm not sure if that was a Lucasism that wound up in the Legends continuity and got used a lot in the RPG or and made its way back or what. But to, to have all these elements come together and have it turn out that Callus was actually there. In fact, it's, it sounds like he was the one who gave the order that he took his bow rifle from the hands of a dead honor guard, one of Zeb's colleagues, and then is proficient with it to me, raises Callus in, in the eyes of the viewer by far and really makes this episode something that could have been, like we were talking about last time, the personal thing where it's it's the Empire in an abstract. The Empire has disenfranchised me. There's something in my past where my opportunities or my chance at a normal life was taken away by the Empire. But the Empire as a whole, as a generic, here we've got a much more personal face on this because it's not just the Empire that took his home and his people. It's callous or at least callous among others and in that sense it makes this a much more personal struggle maybe not for everybody else on the ghost crew but certainly for zeb and that gives him a depth he didn't have before and raises him i think in the eyes of the viewer also so for those two characters this episode was a nice bounce upward even from spark of rebellion yeah he actually says that i gave the order to use them so yeah you're right nathan he, he actually does state that he was responsible for the well, deaths of a lot of his people the one thing that callus says to me is that this inquisitor guy if callus is the inquisitor's right hand man and he's capable the inquisitor is going to be really someone to reckon with i mean he may be on par with vader for all we know because his his underlings can win so i can't wait till we see what the inquisitor has to offer just from seeing what callus is capable of and to continue a comment that we made last week i'm so glad we haven't seen him yet I'm glad that he didn't come in and is now going to be the big baddie that we get every time. I think Callus makes a great sort of intermediary bad guy. But I guess we'll have to wait to see what the next few weeks bring. I want to thank you guys for joining me this evening. It was a lot of fun discussing this episode. Sean, a special thank you to you for being able to join us. And I really hope that you'll be able to join us again. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit republicforces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series, 
and check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, hosted by Nathan and Mark, which you can find amongst the Second Airborne Division podcast network on StarWarsReport.com. Did he, did he look weird like to anybody else? I mean, maybe it's just because I'm used to seeing him depicted a certain way. You know, I, I kind of saw him a little younger. I thought he would probably look a little older. So he's either got good docs or good genes. But I have to agree with you on that. <laughs> he had some work done. <laughs> that, yes. Uh, the Alderanian kinda... surgeons are well known throughout the galaxy. <laughs> it seemed as though R2 and 3PO played very little role for all the screen time that they got. They could have been any characters, and it would not have made a difference here. They were shoehorned in. Uh, what I'm hoping is that unlike Han and Chewie and Death Troopers that was shoehorned in and didn't go anywhere, is that what we're getting here is sort of the Babylon 5 approach. Babylon 5 Season 1, we got an episode in which there's this alien healing device that sucks the life from the one using it to give it to the person being healed. Boxed away and forgotten about for several seasons, then becomes extremely pivotal in Season 4. But if this ship is going to be a character in and of itself, let's not let that go too far, because we do still have the little attack shuttle, the Phantom, left to make its debut, somehow separating itself off from the Ghost, and I would hate to see a Moya Talon thing going on for those who were Farscape fans. How many other franchises can you bring into this episode? <laughs> <laughs> is that a challenge, good sir? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, you win. Please don't. Win. Please don't. I can't wait till he references uh, uh, V eventually <laughs> i think we did that here. a while back didn't because we? it does the the phantom kind of looks like a v transport ship but i guess we'll get into that when they when they do introduce the phantom oh goodness um and you know much like we talked about last time with uh, and we'll get to it someday but uh, much how we talked about it last time with kanan's lightsaber being like one of the worst reveals uh we already know that the phantom is back there it's kind of like when it finally is used and it's going to be supposed to be this big pivotal you know moment that kind of blows everybody's mind so like oh yeah i got that toy and he's apparently the only member i I didn't notice this until this episode but he's apparently the only member of the clue who doesn't use lipstick or something because he's the only character on the crew aside from chopper who doesn't have defined lips we noticed that it's kind of weird um it kind of scares me that you did uh anyway (laughs) (laughs) i'm just saying he gets more aladdin every day I noticed that uh, oh, he's no. more about that base than not the treble, so... <laughs> what does that Cricket? mean? I, I don't even Cricket. know where to go with that. <laughs> what does that mean? That's from the song, Megan Trainer, her song, all about that base and not the treble. Oh, okay. He, you mentioned the lips, I mentioned his ass, I'm sorry. I, I can't believe that got crickets and this Farscape thing that hasn't been on television for 15 years... Uh, people know about? I don't know. Hey, people will understand that reference, my friend. This is a nerd <laughs> show. <laughs> God, you guys are giving me Listen. so much to work with for the bloopers this time. Uh. <laughs> that should be regular show. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Don't put that in the Legends canon. That should uh. be in the regular canon. <laughs> no. But the... Uh, all right. Hold on. Her name, by the way, is Maketh Tua, T-U-A, and the Aqualish with her, uh, who apparently can't work without a translator here, is Amda Wabo. Not to be confused with Cabo Wabo. Oh, come on. Crickets for that? Seriously? <laughs> Stop. We can claim Kira. that it we can claim it was just the mute button, but <laughs> good lord. No, I got it. I, no, no, no tequila drink is here, obviously. <laughs> I know it's a kid show, but goodness. And it has been announced that Disney is going to Wow, was that What was that? Ha- <laughs> Sorry, I, I moved up I moved up on my couch and it Okay. Barrett, please start Sorry. again. Start up start up for Barrett. So it kind of makes sense that they're going to feature some of these things. Who's typing? Sorry, me. Sorry. You got to mute yourself. Uh, if Arnie was here, he already chopped your head off, my friend. They land on Gorel and... Hang on, can, I, can I make a... Can I make a go ahead. Now, Barrent, seeing as how you introduced... Uh, or Sean was introduced here as your white friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> does it seem as though... Um, Maybe we had a parallel going here because it sure seemed like they were doing something racial between Chopper and R2 because R2 could stay up there, but nope, uh, Chopper's going to the back of the bus. Your (laughs) thoughts, sir? 
Chopper is a little darker than R2 is on the top. So, um, <laughs> okay. Made out yeah, of wood. Just, yeah. Just, just, just a little sidetracked given the, the theme earlier in this episode. Nathan, Jonathan, in, don't blame me for that. You're encouraging this, really? Yeah, don't don't blame <laughs> me for that one. I'm not. <laughs> you can, Absolutely. You can, you can play the Sanford and Son theme over, over that part as. as uh, <laughs> I do as hear that in my head when Nathan's question begins. <laughs> but to your point about the Macquarie, no, her, face, her face was the same though. It was it was like the same exact it's, like characters. It was like oh, they, they, you know like you know how they have like you know assets in the. I show know you're my white friend, Sean, but they don't all look the same. Okay. <laughs> it's it's the no. aunt. wow. Okay, it's hold on. I mean, we even get what I have to suspect was an overt reference, or slight but overt reference, to uh, the old Fox X-Men cartoon series. Anybody else catch it? How when they use the disruptors, the blast is basically Jubilee's powers? You did it. You added another franchise. Another one. He did it. He did it. Yes! No, I, I, I missed that, Nathan. As long as they never have a point where one of the younger characters, Sabine or Ezra, has to throw up and they refer to it as having to Ralph, I think the references are good. Uh, dude, that one does get crickets. <laughs> we finally caught a mistake from Filoni. It's like in the horror yeah, movie. Yeah, finally. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's dirty in one frame, and then the next frame, they seem like they've taken a shower. So. And bigger spoiler, Ezra's little buddy's black. That was just for Baron. That's just for Baron. Uh, Jonathan's going to cut your mic off. <laughs> Seriously. As long as, they, as long as they don't try to make him Lando's child or something stupid and say, well, they're the only, him and Mace, they're the only, yeah, that's insane. Star Wars, don't do that. <laughs> don't play the stereotype. Play the diversity card, but don't play the stereotype card is what I want. So he was the guy with the weird facial hair that gave the order to use the weapon that looks like Jubilees. I guess that makes Callus' first name Logan. Just saying. Or Jim, yeah. I guess it would be now Jim James. The yeah, one he- thing... Yeah, he's, he's got a bit, got a little bit of uh, Wolverine-esque facial hair. Well, the one thing, yeah, he does have the, the pork chop sideburns, but that's one step above the chin strap beard. 